Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 246. It's titled, What Central Banks Don't Know Should Concern You. Maybe I should say, What Central Bankers Don't Know. Today, we're going to look at what determines interest rates. What's it mean now that the yield curve inverted? And what does even, what's the yield curve? Why is the Federal Reserve looking at or evaluating? They're doing a listening tour as they reflect on maybe they should change how they go about addressing what is known as monetary policy. What is monetary policy? Bottom line, why does any of this matter to your investment portfolio? Because it it absolutely matters. Last week, the yield curve inverted. The yield curve is a essentially a graph, a line graph, a plot of interest rates. On the left side, you have shorter-term rates, 30-day treasury bills. It goes out to six months, one year, three-year, five, seven, 10-year, and 30 years. What happened was, for the first time since 2007, the yield on 10-year treasury bonds, they yielded. The interest rate was 2.46%, was yielding less than what you could earn on cash or effectively on 30-day treasury bills. Not by much, just was a little lower. Why is that important? Because every recession since 1960, recession being economic contraction, was preceded by this yield curve inversion. And all we mean by inversion is longer-term rates are lower than shorter-term rates. Now, the 30-year treasury bond is still higher than short-term rates, but every recession. Now, that does not mean every time the yield curve inverted, it led to a recession. In 1966, we had a yield curve inversion, but no recession came about. But it's been a pretty good indicator. The logical question is, well, what's the lead time? When a yield curve inversion takes place, how soon after does a recession start? On average, it's been about 14 months. So if we have a recession, it's been about 14 months. In 2008, the yield curve inverted 21 months before that recession. When the recession started in 2008, so 21 months before that, that's when the yield curve inverted. 11 months prior to the 2001 recession and 16 months prior to the 1991 recession. Recognizing that the stock market tends to sell off during recessions after a yield curve inverts, how much later has the stock market peaked? For the yield curve inversion that that started really leading up to the 2008 financial crisis, the stock market peaked 21 months later. In the year 2000, kind of leading up to the 2001 recession, the stock market peaked one month before the yield curve inversion. 
for the recession of, of 1991, the stock market peaked 16 months after the yield curve conversion. And in the 1981 recession, the stock market peaked one month after the inversion. So there's kind of a wide range there. After the stock market peaked, going into that recession, the market typically sold off anywhere from 17% in the 1981 recession to 57% in the global financial crisis. And so it's important to recognize, to be mindful of this, but we can't use just a yield curve inversion as a signal to get out of the stock market. First off, we should never get completely out of the stock market. We need to use a weight of evidence approach and be incrementalist, adjust our exposure as things deteriorate. A yield curve inversion is certainly one of those signals, but also is looking at manufacturing PMI, purchasing manager indices, looking at are they below 48, which is typically accompanied a recession. I also look at the conference board leading economic index, particularly the six-month rate of change. When there's been a recession, that leading index has fallen by more than 4% over the previous six months. The most recent data shows that it still has increased over the past six months. That'll be released this week. At least 80% of the subcomponents that make up that index have also declined over the previous six months. And, and examples of, of some of the subcomponents is the average weekly hours that, that the manufacturing sector works, average weekly initial claims for unemployment, the ISM index of new orders, stock prices are in there, building permits, things like that. Now that the yield curve has inverted, the logical question is why? Why is the interest rate that yield on 10-year treasury bonds effectively that of cash. Let's look at what determines interest rates. Obviously, interest rates are determined by market forces, the buying and selling of bonds and other fixed income instruments. But what are investors looking at? What gets factored in to those interest rates? Well, the first is the expectation regarding what short-term rates will be in the future. And short-term rates are effectively controlled by central banks. They set what's known as the policy rate, the target. And we'll look at what they base that on. So right now, the target is around 2.5%. And that's why short-term rates are yielding roughly 2.5%. As you go out further on the yield curve, if the rates are higher, if they're much higher, it's because the expectation is that central banks will continue to raise the short-term policy rate. That's one element that determines interest rates. A second is what are inflation expectations. Investors believe inflation is increasing, inflation being the, the rise in prices over time. They want to be compensated for that. And so there's, there's inflation expectations component embedded in interest rates. The third component is the term premium. This is additional compensation, a margin of safety that investors demand or sometimes demand for unexpected inflation, or if central banks act more aggressively in raising that policy rate in the future. It's additional protection. Let's focus, though, on, on that first term, the, the policy rate, that clearly is set by central banks. How do they decide? In 2015, the policy rate was 0.25%. Now it's 2.5%. Are they just guessing? In some regards, they are. I mean, they're trying to, what they're trying to do is they're trying to set 
the interest rate near what is known as the equilibrium interest rate. It's a rate, as Ben Bernanke says, that is consistent with full employment. So everybody that wants a job can get a job. And it's a rate that's consistent with sufficient investment by businesses. Businesses are always trying to decide, should we expand? Should we borrow money to expand? Should we buy more real estate? Should we perhaps buy equipment for a factory? And and to decide that, they want to look at what's the economic return of this particular investment they're considering. They have some type of hurdle rate. And that hurdle rate needs to exceed what is known as their cost of capital, which is the weighted average of what it costs to borrow for the particular company, as well as if they're publicly traded. What's the embedded expectation of investors? What's the cost of their equity capital? What do investors expect to earn on a stock? And so there's a weighted average, and that's what's known as the cost of capital for a company. Well, that cost of capital is influenced by what prevailing interest rates are. If interest rates are higher based on what the, the Fed has set its policy rate at, whatever inflation expectations are, what the term premium is, what investors believe future short-term rates will be, that influences businesses' cost of capital. The higher the cost of capital, less projects become economically viable. And so in a period where rates are very, very low, there are potentially more projects that companies can pursue if they choose to pursue them. What the Federal Reserve tries to do is is set a policy target that encourages business to expand, to hire more workers, but not at a rate that's so low that there's some over-exuberance there, that they're borrowing excessively, that the money supply, because when banks lend, that creates more money in the economy, the money supply is increasing faster than the capacity of the private sector to produce goods and services, which could lead to inflation. It comes down to this equilibrium rate of interest. The challenge is it's unobservable. Nobody really knows what it is. There's a number of things that can impact it, but it's completely unobservable. And so they're sort of like guessing. They are guessing. And to give you a sense of how much they're guessing, in October 2018, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said, interest rates are still accommodative, but we're gradually moving to a place where they will be neutral. See, they're trying to find what's that neutral rate of interest where the economy is not expanding too fast or too slow, that we have stability of economic growth, we have close to full employment. So he says, we're gradually moving to a place where they will be neutral. We may go past neutral, but we're a long way from neutral at this point, probably. Hedging there, probably. (laughs) But this, this is in October 2018, a long way from neutral. And right after that, 10 year treasury got to the highest it's been in a number of years. But then there was a shift in the press conference that Jerome Powell hosted March 19th, 2019. Five months later, he said, the federal funds rate is now in the broad range of estimates of neutral, the rate that tends to neither to stimulate nor to restrain the economy. As I noted, my colleagues and I think that this setting is well-suited to the current outlook. 
and believe that we should be patient in assessing the needs for any changes in the stance of policy. Patient means that we see no need to rush to judgment. It may be some time before the outlook for jobs and inflation calls for a change in policy. The difference in the policy rate between October and March was 0.25%. He said, well, we're a long way. That, that's not a long way. That's barely budging. Now, this policy rate, he mentions the federal funds rate. The federal funds rate is the interest rate that banks that are members of the Federal Reserve can lend to each other at. So it's kind of this tar- target. It's also very close to what's known as the interest that the Federal Reserve pays on excess reserves that banks hold at the central bank. We've talked about quantitative easing when, the, as part of the process of the Federal Reserve buying treasury securities and mortgage-backed bonds, they bought them through commercial banks. Commercial banks got excess reserves. They get interest on those excess reserves. And if you're getting interest on excess reserves, you're unlikely to lend to another bank unless you can get a little bit more interest than what you get just holding them at the Federal Reserve. And so the interest rate on those excess reserves is 2.4% right now. The Fed funds target is around 2.5%. We've been in this period of raising short-term interest rates. I mentioned they started, that policy rate started at 0.25%. Now, at least it's on hold. They're being patient. What's a little disappointing is over the previous nine tightening cycles, the median real Fed funds rate, so after backing out inflation, has been around 3%. Right now, the Fed funds rate is 2.5%. That's, you know, if inflation is running around 2 2.5%, That's a far cry from the the average of 3% real interest that the policy target has been in. For example, after the Fed finished tightening, and by tightening, we're talking about raising short-term policy rates. In 2006, the Fed funds rate was 2.75% real, so inflation on top of that. It was 4% in 2000. Now it's barely zero. And what's amazing about it, this is over a period of a 1,000 days, three years. The average tightening cycle has lasted 600 days. The 10-year Treasury bond yield during this particular cycle went up 0.47%. On average, during tightening, it's gone up 1.4%. It's kind of amazing that, and a little disconcerting that, are we done? Is the economy so weak that at a policy rate of 2.5%, with 10-year Treasury bond yields around 2.5%, a yield curve inversion. Is that it? Because that means we don't get much interest on our cash. Why can't the economy support higher interest rates than that? Before we look at that and what this means for your investment portfolio, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. 
And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. On February 22nd, 2019, Federal Reserve Vice Chair Richard Clarita gave a speech. He first mentioned the dual mandate that the Federal Reserve has, maximize employment and price stability. And then he said, Perhaps most significantly, neutral interest rates appear to have fallen in the United States and abroad. Moreover, this global decline in neutral interest rates is widely expected to persist for years. He's saying that this unobservable neutral rate of interest, that level of interest that provides economic stability, that level of interest that encourages sufficient borrowing by businesses to expand, but doesn't cause the economy to run too quickly, that that has fallen across the globe. In fact, there's a paper by Lucas Rachel of the Bank of England and Lawrence Summers of Harvard, where they've looked at these this neutral rate of interest and estimate that it has fallen by 3% over the past 40 years. That's huge. Why has the neutral rate fallen if it has? Because again, it's unobservable. Clarita continues, the decline in neutral policy rates likely reflects several factors, including aging populations, changes in risk-taking behavior, and a slowdown in technological growth. David Leonhardt in the New York Times mentions perhaps it's due to a savings glut, that Americans are saving more, he writes, and spending less, partly because the rich now take home so much of the economy's income, and the rich don't spend as large a share of their income as the poor and middle class. Another reason he points out, and these are are themes we've talked about in the podcast, is companies are bigger 
They, they're more monopoly-like. They don't have to invest in new projects as much. He gives the example of an internet provider. Maybe an, your internet provider is, is not willing to invest because they have a monopoly, so a lack of competition. Summers, in his papers, talks about what he refers to as the demassification of the economy. Developers don't need to build as many malls and stores because we're, we're ordering so much stuff online. We don't need as much stuff. We're happy with less stuff. And, and that's probably, a, that, that is a good thing. But it has an impact on interest rates. If the neutral rate of interest has fallen, these are potential reasons. But there's another reason why neutral interest rates may have fallen. And this is a paper by Claudio Borrio and his co-authors. He writes, Going beyond the standard factors, we investigate whether monetary policy has a persistent effect on real interest rates. Monetary policy is the things central banks do, such as setting their policy target, quantitative easing, or other things they do to try to set the policy in line with the, the unobservable equilibrium real rate of interest. They continue, though, in our long sample. So they say so many of the studies on this neutral rate of interest only go back to the 80s. They went, they went back a century or more. And they believe, based on their, their long sample, they write, monetary policy regimes go hand-in-hand hand with a significant shifts in real interest rates. At a global level, co-movement in real interest rates across countries are more closely related to the monetary policy of global anchor countries than to factors such as the global savings glut. In other words, they're saying real rates are low because central banks, Federal Reserve, the Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank are keeping their policy rate low. And because they're keeping their policy rate low as they try to observe what's going on with the economy, not set it too high, that actually is what's keeping that, that's influencing that neutral rate of interest. It's their actions that are influencing it, which in some ways makes a lot of sense. The other thing is the idea that by keeping that rate low, it does encourage more borrowing and more debt, which could and has led to a debt crisis. Richard Koo of Nomura calls this a balance sheet deflation, that it just leads to more borrowing, which then can become somewhat deflationary. Jim Grant and Barron said, artificially low interest rates never fail to store up trouble, facilitating leverage. They promote not growth, but larger balance sheets. So we don't really know why is it that at a policy target of 2.5%, the economy appears to be slowing somewhat, or at least stabilizing, not expanding rapidly. Japanese economy is somewhat stagnated. The European economy is somewhat stagnated. And their rates, they never really got to raise interest rates. Is it because the neutral rate of interest, that equilibrium rate of interest, is now much, much lower? Or does it have something to do with just the fact that central banks are keeping it low and so are expectations? Because expectations are critical. There's an anchoring effect. Let me go back to the quote again by Richard Clarita. He continues then, these factor contributions are highly uncertain. So in other words, what is contributing to the much lower neutral interest rate? But he writes, but, or says, but irrespective of their precise role, the policy implications of the decline in neutral rates are important. All else being equal, a fall in neutral rates increases the likelihood 
that a central bank's policy rate will reach its effective lower bound in future economic downturns. That development, in turn, could make it more difficult during downturns for monetary policy to support spending and employment and keep inflation from falling too low. What's this effective lower bound? Well, what he's saying is, well, look, so the policy target, if we're done raising interest rates, the policy at 2.5%, when the next recession comes, as the Federal Reserve cuts interest rates and other central banks, bankers around the world cut interest rates, nominal interest rates can't go below zero. That's a lower bound, which means that perhaps they can't lower rates low enough to stimulate more borrowing because they're already zero. That's a concern. Central bankers are worried that if the economy got into a recession and they couldn't lower rates low enough, they they ran into this lower bound, that that could lead to deflation, that consumers, households, businesses wouldn't be willing to spend because they believe prices will fall and get kind of a downward spiral, a depression. Central bankers worry a lot about deflation, and that's one reason they have an inflation target of 2%. That's their target. They've consistently fallen short of that, but they want inflation of at least 2% so that there's enough of a, a margin of error so that we don't get the risk of deflation. Central bank then, the Federal Reserve, is looking at its monetary policy tools to see maybe there's something else that can be done. Clarita talked about some of the things that they're looking at, and, and they're highly controversial. They talk about doing a makeup strategy. If inflation is falling short of their 2% target, coming out of a recession, they'll actually keep rates lower than they might be otherwise. In other words, below that neutral rate of interest, at least their estimate of it, in hopes that that will lead to inflation higher than the 2% target, so that on average, it averages 2%. There's an important caveat there. Clarita says, the benefits of the makeup strategies rest heavily on households and firms believing in advance that the makeup will, in fact, be delivered when the time comes. For example, that a persistent inflation shortfall will be met by future inflation above 2%. comes to the belief, so much of what central bankers do and estimate depends on what households and businesses do. What do they believe? What are their inflation expectations? Where are they anchored? Have they dropped? And does it change their behavior? They don't know. Banks, central bankers, they don't know what households and businesses will do, what they'll, they'll think. And so when you have a highly controversial strategy of, of running higher than above average inflation, there's a risk that those inflation expectations, those, that anchoring effect, people start to worry about inflation. They act differently. Now, Clarita doesn't talk about that aspect. He talks about that this policy will only work if people believe the policy will work. Otherwise, inflation expectations could be too low. And again, we have the risk of deflation. So this is one of their tools that they're exploring. They're getting input on. The other one is potentially to fix interest rates. Clarita says, for example, as is presently Bank of Japan policy, the Federal Open Market Committee could, when the effective lower bound is binding, establish a temporary ceiling for treasury yields at longer maturities by standing ready to purchase them at a pre-announced floor price. 
They're effectively talking about controlling long-term rates, just like the Bank of Japan said, we're not going to let the 10-year Japanese bond get above 0%. And it's been a very effective strategy to keep rates low. Now, whether that's helped the economy or not, that's a different matter. The Federal Reserve prior to 1951 did that to help support the war effort. They pegged long-term interest rates at just under, I believe, 2.5%. This is another policy tool that the central bank is considering. They decided in the, in the financial crisis not to do that. But now, he says, it's worth considering. The review will reassess the case for these and other tools in light of more recent experience in other countries. They're re-looking at how they can address future financial crisis. But the issue is, how much does the central banks actually lead to crisis by encouraging more borrowing, by encouraging debt bubbles, that interest rates are artificially low because they've set them low? Or are these other macro factors, too much savings, income inequality, the demassification of the economy, we're just not buying as much stuff, we don't need as much stuff. Has that led to a reduction in the neutral real interest rate? And so now it's much closer to that lower bound of zero for nominal interest rates, which means central banks are going to have to do more to fight the next crisis. And it's a concern. I mean, we talked about this in my episode on Peter Schiff. That's what he's worried about. And, and it's, it's a legitimate concern. What will households and businesses do when they see the Federal Reserve having to do quantitative easing again? When we have to run, when budget deficits, because we're in a recession, get to be 13% of GDP. As an investor, as individuals, what do we do about that? Knowing that the Federal Reserve has been consistently wrong in terms of their economic forecast. The fact that Chairman Powell had to completely reverse where he thought rates should be within a five-month period of time. We should own real assets that protect against inflation. We don't know if we'll get deflation or inflation. But one of the things that we're seeing is that third factor that determines interest rates, that term premium, the, the protection that investors require in terms of additional interest rates yield for unexpected inflation, that term premium is negative right now. There is no additional margin of safety. Here's how Jim Grant puts it. The absence of anything resembling a margin of safety in vast proportions of today's fixed income markets there's an absence of it. And he says that's a worrisome fact. It is. That worries me. I would like to get more yield on the income strategies that I, that I invest in. So what do I do? I have exposure. I, I own gold coins. I own real estate. I own land. Real things in case we get unexpected inflation. That anchoring that households have and businesses, that things just don't go as planned. That there are just things... There are unintended consequences that the policies that central bankers use, they don't work. And households and businesses start, the private sector starts acting like inflation is even more than it is. They start hoarding and we get inflation. We don't know. So you have to protect yourself. There's a lot central bankers don't know. They're guessing. They have tools. They have models. 
They do their best. As a central banker, you're, you're supposed to be confident. You're supposed to sound confident. You want people to believe that you know what's going on. To build credibility. But they're guessing. They're doing their best. And so it's, we have to do our part to protect in case they're wrong. Either we get much higher inflation or we get deflation. We need to, to be flexible in our portfolio, have multiple return drivers. That is episode 246. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. Please sign up for my free weekly insider's guide. An email I send with the links to that week's episode. Some of the best writing I do each week, an essay on, on that week's, something related to that week's podcast episode or, or something completely different. And you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>